Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great podcasts is about helping Latter-day Saints like you tackle deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping these podcasts alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the programs on this podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber. Or making a donation at mormondiscussions.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussions, plural, with an S on the end, dot org. Donate today and support programs like Mormon Discussion, Radio Free Mormon, Mormon Awakenings, The Mormon Wellness Project, Mormon History Podcast, Marriage on a Tightrope, and others. If these programs benefit you, and you want to see these continue, please consider making an annual donation starting today. All donations are tax-exempt inside the United States, and go towards keeping the podcast alive. Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great programs. Helping you navigate Mormonism one episode at a time. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful for this chance to be with you. Today, I want to talk about this satire apology that went out in regards to uh, President Nelson meeting with the NAACP. Um, and, and I've got several thoughts here, and, and I hope people can be sensitive to this issue. It has tentacles in lots of different directions, and some of them are deeply wounded uh, and knotted. And to jump into those and try to untie those knots uh, and to make sense of them, like, we just got to be careful because people's feelings are tender and I want to honor those and respect those. And, and so I talk about these issues, recognizing first off my own, my own white privilege. And I've always tried to say in in a lot of ways, like I'm very privileged in the church in that uh, I'm white. uh, I'm a convert to the church and no one else in my family is a member. So I can say things without uh, damaging the relationships with my sibling, with my mother or my father. My wife and my kids are on the same journey that I'm on. So by raising critical concerns of Mormonism, I'm not going to damage my relationships with my children or my spouse. And so all of those things added together make it easier for me to speak up and to talk about things. And I want to just fully recognize that other folks can't say as much, maybe. Um, but I also want to recognize on a, on a similar tangent that because of my white privilege, um, I'm likely to dive into an issue and share a perspective and share an opinion where that opinion is shielded from the day-to-day life of those who are different from me. Meaning that folks who have lived a different experience because of the color of their skin or the country they're born in or the even the place that they're born within the United States and what they had to deal with in that location is much different than my experience. And so it will, I, I may show my ignorance in having this conversation. By now, hopefully everybody has, uh, who's, who's a listener in this audience, that you, you've understood what happened within the last uh, four or five days. And a recognition that President Nelson and the First Presidency and some of the apostles, uh, maybe all of them, met with the NAACP behind closed doors and then they have this, this meeting uh, in the morning 
where they're asking the media to come. They're going to make an announcement. And so people are excited. And first off, I just want to say to the LDS church, I mean, you, you screwed up. You screwed up. And, and for the littlest reason to start off with, which is that you didn't say anything. And you ask the media to pack up their tripods and pack up their cameras. And, and you got the journalists and you got the cameraman and they hop in their van and they drive to the church office building and they get out and they walk up to the third floor, wherever you're at, and they set up their tripod and they set up their camera and they get their notepads out and they sit in the chairs and they wait for you to start. And you give them a five minute speech of nothing and you don't take questions. To me, that was uber disrespectful of you. You wasted lots of people their morning simply so that you could have a picture, a photograph, a photo op with you and others outside the church who were of color. To me, in my mind, again, maybe my white ignorance, but that's shameful. You wasted everybody's time, number one. Number two, uh, Jonathan Streeter, everyone knows now that he's the creator of the satire apology. The the satire, the, the parody that he put together, and let's say this, it was brilliant. It was masterful. And we're going to talk in a moment about the hurt that it caused. And I think the unintended hurt, uh, the hurt that, that many of us in progressive Mormonism, as we chuckled even at the success of this thing being picked up as real, that we were ignorant of the hurt that it was causing behind the scenes that we didn't pick up on because of our white privilege and our ignorance to those experiences. We'll get to that. But let me say that the what, what Jonathan Streeter did in creating a website that was one mark off from the churches, that looked identical, that worded itself the right way, that links to actual church sites, that contains a first presidency letter that also looks dead on ringer real. Nailed it. Brilliant, genius, masterful, and it fooled people. And what Jonathan was trying to accomplish, which was to show the irony between what would be a deeply welcomed, spirit-filled, empathetic, charitable, loving, vulnerable, authentic, unshielded, undefensive, honest apology from the church. It was effective at doing that. What I don't think Jonathan saw, and I certainly didn't see it, and I shared the, the apology. I, sh- I shared Jonathan Streeter's creation. And, and I'm part of those who were excited to see people have to deal with that irony, what I did not anticipate, what I don't think Jonathan anticipated, what I don't think anyone anticipated who's making this argument, is the kind of hurt it was going to create, perpetuate, and fester that in part already existed in our community and in part was almost being recreated again for the first time. And I've got an analogy I'll use later that I want to share that helped bring it home for me. It helped me make sense of this. Um... And so the moment I recognized that morning the hurt, and it came from the Sisters in Zion Facebook page, um, it was uh, from a young uh, African-American lady, uh, Zandra Vrains. And Zandra, I just want to say, beautiful. Listen to the whole thing. And you exposed my blind spot. You exposed my ignorance. 
And it's one of the beautiful things on this side of life. Uh, Richard Rohr talks about the, the two halves of life, the first half and second half. And, and I want to get to some ideas here on that in a moment. But in the second half of life, where I value vulnerability and authenticity more than I value belonging and such value, such priorities allows me to listen to individuals whose life experience, whose perspectives are different. And rather than be defensive and say like, I'm holding my ground and that person just needs to get over it. And I'm just as this is, I'm right. They're wrong. None of that. Like in this place where I'm at, I want to hear multiple perspectives. In fact, I find it more interesting to spend time with people who are different than me. And I simply am not excited to be around folks who are going to agree with me and say the same thing as me. And that's true of the group of friends that I hang around. Yeah, we have lots of things in common. But one of the things I think we each love about each other is we're at this place in life where we are a group who can easily say like, yeah, I just don't see it your way. I disagree. No big deal. And we listen to each other when someone disagrees and has a different perspective. So when I listened to Zandra, I realized, again, my own blind spots. And at that point, I went onto Facebook and included a disclaimer that those, those sites were fake. I, I now realize the added hurt that I was contributing to um, this creation that was made, I think, with the right motives. I think with the idea in mind of helping the church see its blind spot, helping the church see its ignorance. And unfortunately, uh, whether we're talking Jonathan or anybody else who shared it without exposing it, uh, our blind spots as well. Now, I've seen people jump on and, and criticize Jonathan and give him a lot of uh, flack. And, and to the point where you label him as you know, us versus them, and he's them, and he's the bad guy, he's, he's evil, he's Satan. Uh, none of that makes sense to me. I think when someone does that, they're showing their blind spot. Because this world is messy, and people make mistakes. And making a genuine mistake when one's motive was to do one thing, except they didn't foresee the repercussions in another area, like we can call them ignorant in that moment. We can call their action hurtful. We can hold them accountable to their behavior and their choice. But painting people into camps of evil or of Satan or going to hell, that comes off as a very binary way of seeing the world, and that falls short as well. And I heard other people criticize uh, Jonathan because he was deceptive. And I want to be really careful here because deception is uh, used a lot. And sometimes it's used in uh, ways that are unethical. And in other ways, it's sometimes it's used in ways that um, drive home a point. For instance, if you are uh, two countries waging war against each other and you're in battle, there are lots of tricks of deceptiveness that doesn't make something cheating. It doesn't make something unethical. It's what we do to win and to protect our own. Um, I also want to be careful because if you're inside the church and you're criticizing Jonathan for being deceptive, we also then need to hold our own leaders accountable when they are deceptive. And one can simply go back to the beginning and look at Joseph Smith and his uh, Abrahamic test 
that he gave to some of the other leaders in the church when he would approach their wives and their daughters and ask them in marriage and then say, sorry, just kidding, that was an Abrahamic test. So if you're in the church as a believer criticizing Streeter for deceptiveness, that's very hypocritical. And again, so you're, you're having your blind spots exposed to you. Others would criticize Jonathan for hurting people, innocent victims, innocent people like Zandra who have already been through enough and continually have these things that she's wrestling with. And, and then Jonathan is just stoking the fire. And I want to honor, like, I'm sorry, Zandra, like that. I'm not going to excuse this away. I'm not going to, to say it's okay. To anybody else out there who saw this hurt or felt it firsthand, I'm sorry. And I'm not going to just say it's okay, that it was worth it. I'm not going to do that. And I hope you'll listen to the whole podcast today and you'll sense that that's not where I'm going. But I want to say to criticize something simply because innocent people were hurt is also a blind spot. And here's why. When the November 2015 policy hit, progressive and ex-Mormonism were in an uproar because what the church did and what Elder Christofferson then tried to defend and then what Elder Nelson then put into stone as a revelation, it was atrocious. And when ex-Mormonism or progressive Mormonism or even just those whose hearts were pulled towards wanting to defend and love those who were LGBT, when those in defense of LGBT individuals spoke up and we had rallies and we, we did uh, protests and we wrote letters and we raised our voice in the midst of all of that noise that makes an effort to try and get the church to change. Please hear me. There undoubtedly was some young person somewhere who in the roller coaster ride of the ups and downs of people saying how wrong this was and the church saying how right it was, Undoubtedly, some young person somewhere took their life because of the noise. In other words, when you raise a hand and give public dissent against a harmful action by another, sometimes just that conversation can pull that person who's already vulnerable into a more desperate space and they take their life. Does that mean that everyone should stop raising a voice of dissent? Does that mean that everyone should just let it be? No, because the hope is that, again, let's be sensitive. Let's be careful. Let's, Let's make sure our hearts are in the right place. But the hope is that by raising a voice of dissent, you're saving exponentially more lives going forward. No one wants to hear that. No one wants to say like, I don't want to lose one. It's not worth it if we lose one, but the reality is that we don't get to have win-wins in life generally. Rarely do win-wins happen. And so when we try to make the world a better place, there's going to be collateral damage. And it doesn't mean we have to accept it and be okay with it, but there's also no perfect way to navigate these issues so that there's no collateral damage. Now, with that said... I struggled deeply after listening to Zandra, and I tried to figure out why. And so I spent um, two, three days just sitting with this over and over again, running it through my head, like, why, why am I struggling to fully encapsulate her view 
and those who felt as she did. And I finally, it hit me because I'm so sensitive to the LGBT issue. And so I started trying to see it through that lens. And finally it hit home for me. It's one thing when we raise our hand and say, hey, LDS Church, this is not okay. You're doing something wrong. And in the process of that, while trying to make this church a healthier place, unfortunately, some young person took their life. And trust me when I say, like, I value life. Losing even one is unacceptable to me, but I don't, but I think to be quiet, to say nothing, we lose even more. Again, there's no win-win in that situation. But if we make it this, this idea where let's assume that this fake website, this um, satirical apology, this uh, parody of irony within a first letter, first pregnancy letter in a website that looks so real. Let's say the opportunity, in, instead of being race, was around LGBT policies and LGBT kids. And this fake website comes out with this satire, with this parody, and people buy it. Mothers and fathers of gay children believe it. But more importantly, these kids believe it. And they're able to invest their emotion in it. They believe it long enough that they invest their emotion in it. They're in tears. They're so thrilled that the day has come that their church finally senses the space they need to be human the space they need to have a human experience, to be on a journey, and to be permitted to be both Mormon and homosexual. And then only to have that ripped away. And in that roller coaster ride of emotion, to have some LGBT kids take their life, would we still look at this experience and defend it as there was nothing wrong here, that people need to get over it? that they should be blaming the church, that they should be solely blaming the church. And I think, I hope, that those listeners who have offered that response of get over it, or it's worth it, or put your blame entirely on the church, would sense then that such a effort was misplaced and did incredible harm. Now, what I'm sorry for is that it took me switching my wrestling with this issue and placing it on another issue before I could get it. For that, I'm sorry as well. Human beings, our brains, are wired to protect and to ensure that we have a secure identity. Our brains are wired to seek after a valid identity. And because our brains are wired that way, the two things our brains seek after is belonging and authenticity. Those things are crucial to our identities. Our brains in the first half of life are hardwired to place belonging above authenticity. And when I listen to how the church has responded to this issue of its racist past, um, it becomes apparent that members of the church, because their brains are wired that way, they put the belonging, which also means their loyalty to, ahead of their authenticity. And 
how this shows up is that when somebody asks a Mormon a difficult question, that Mormon, rather than give the real answer that's deep down in their gut, will give the answer they think the church wants them to give. And this showed itself in this issue. When people prior to this apology, this parody of an apology, this satire of an apology, and I keep using those words because I, th- I deeply think that's what it was, and I deeply think that's what Jonathan Streeter intended it to be. And I think, again, minus the blind spots, it was effective at pointing out that irony. In the past, prior to this apology, this, this parody of one, prior to that, when people came to those of color or to other members of the church who were not of, of black skin and said, like, your church has a racist past, why doesn't it apologize? We, as a community, have certain answers that we've given. We look forward, not backward. We don't give apology. Apologies aren't, aren't necessarily helpful. We don't want an apology. We don't need an apology. And what I learned through this experience is just how strong it is that we say what the church, what we think the church wants us to say, to be loyal and to belong to our tribe. When this, when, when this apology released that morning, it became permissible for those who believed it to really share what their real feelings deep down were and for them to say it was about time and we needed this and this is helpful and this brings some beginning of a reconciliation. It brings some beginning of healing. And then I look back at my own life and realize just how long I went in the church saying what I thought the church wanted me to say. In other words, my faith crisis, my doubts, my frustration with the church was always stronger than I led on. My betrayal, my anger, my sadness, they were always significantly stronger and more present than I led on, than I said. Because I knew to be Mormon, I can't say that. That's what you do, LDS Church. You don't make a safe space for people to say what they really think and feel. You have created multiple mechanisms that say, look, and these mechanisms are said and unsaid. And they say, look, to be Mormon, you have to stay short of this line. And by compelling people with these mechanisms to stay short of that line, you never have a fair barometer of where the church really is at on these issues. And it's wrong. And it causes trauma. And it's unhealthy. What I learned from this experience that happened this week was that all of us as Mormons, we withheld our real story. We withheld our truth in order to paint things as positive as possible. Because the church doesn't value authenticity. The church only values your usefulness in belonging and upholding the story. As uh, this is Wednesday, the 22nd um, of May, this morning I released uh, an episode, uh, an interview, where I'm talking to uh, Brittany Hartley. She's the one interviewing me. And our, I, I talk about at length this our family's transition of stopping our attendance last 
December. And it really came sometime before that. But even up until the end, uh, the interview with Mormon Matters and Dan Witherspoon, uh, the interview on Infants on Thrones, um, I'm always trying to word things softer than what they really are. And to the apologist at Fair Mormon, I, I know you guys, you're wording things and you know it. I've had conversations with you guys. You word things softer than how you really feel and think. Because this institution compels us to do that. Because belonging is more important than authenticity. In the second half of life, that switch turns. We begin to value authenticity more then we value belonging, or at least they begin to become more even, and then authenticity begins to jump ahead. So then we begin to say what's on our mind more often. We begin not to couch our statements. We begin to tell it like it really is. And Mormonism, when we tell it like it really is, you don't fare too well. When people say why they're really hurting and when they're really uncomfortable and when things really don't feel right, and how serious their doubts are, and when they say how serious these problems are, and when they say how unhealthy these interactions are, you don't fare too well. It's only when people place their loyalty above their authenticity and are willing to endure the harm that comes with that, does Mormonism have a space in which it can survive or thrive. Now, Infants on Thrones did an episode this week where they talk about Jonathan Streeter's apology. I wanted the apology to be read, so I'm just going to simply utilize Glenn's reading of that apology just so I don't have to do it since it's already been done. By the way, Glenn, it's primer, not primer. Um, Here it is. I want to finish with this, and and maybe you've read it. Maybe you heard Glenn say it. Maybe you heard it somewhere else. Would you please listen to it one more time? And I want you to think to yourself, the spirit of this apology What if the church had this spirit, this way of doing things, this MO, this motive in its heart as an institution in the way it operated itself over the last 10 years? Would you please think about it that way as you listen? Here it is. May 17th, 2018. Two general authorities and the following leaders in the United States and Canada, Area 70, Stake, Mission and District Presidents, Bishops and Branch Presidents. Dear Brethren, President Nelson meets with NAACP, offers apology for history of racism. As I look around, I am reminded that this is not the first time leaders of our church have sat in council with the leadership of the NAACP. The first meeting in 1963, prior to the October General Conference, resulted in a remarkable statement on civil rights read by President Hugh B. Brown over the tabernacle pulpit. It was a beginning. As I ponder on it now, I recognize how much we as a church must learn from our past. It is with a solemn heart that I address you all today. I have upon my shoulders a mantle that I don't suppose you can see with your eyes. It has a weight of its own and represents the responsibility and duty that accompany this office which I hold, the holy stewardship of the children of God, both within and outside of our faith. The trust inherent to that stewardship is no small part of its weight. This prophetic mantle of this dispensation of the fullness of times began on the shoulder of the founder of our faith, 
the prophet Joseph Smith. I imagine Joseph's shoulders strained at times to bear the weight of the mantle until they were relieved of that calling on the ground outside of Carthage jail. Still, the mantle passed on. To each of the brethren who have borne it since then, those men who have passed through the office I now hold, its weight and shape have persisted, adapted to the needs of the people and the inspired direction of our Creator. Each of us bear the same duty and responsibility in accepting this office, and in so doing, we also may be called upon to act on the principle of that mantle in completing or responding to matters started by our institutional and ecclesiastical forebears who also bore it before us. It is in that capacity that I address you now, this day. Today, as prophet, seer, and revelator, and President of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I offer a full, unqualified apology for the error of racism which was taught from this office and in the tabernacle and over the pulpits of our churches the world over. I am joined by my counselors in the First Presidency and the full quorum of the Twelve Apostles in making this apology, and we collectively bear witness and testimony of the devastating effects of racism which were perpetrated by leaders of the church in the past. Institutionally in the past, we taught false and hurtful ideas about curses, skin color, and spiritual worthiness, and we were wrong. We taught false notions of white supremacy in civil and religious life, heinous ideas of pure white blood, and erroneously condemned interracial marriage, and we were wrong. We took it upon ourselves to interpret scripture to justify the false ideas and closed our hearts and minds to the truth of God's love, even when it could be found in God's written word, ancient and revealed, and we were wrong. We hardened our hearts to the plain and simple truth of universal brotherhood and equality of all before God, and we were wrong. We withheld from our brothers and sisters the joys of temple service, the security of an eternal family, the peace of hope for the full exaltation, complete fellowship among the saints, and the duty and blessing of the priesthood, and we were wrong. We operated in the political sphere and used our influence to fight against civil rights when we should have been on the front lines in defense of those rights, and we were wrong. We reproved good men and women whose hearts were enlightened and whose voices were raised to God for equality, and we were wrong. We have previously acknowledged that false and racist explanations of the priesthood and temple restrictions were wrong and disavowed them. Today, I am declaring that the ban itself was wrong. It was not of God, but of fallible men, born of ignorance, pride, and sin. We stand humbly before our God and the world this day to prostrate our souls and beg forgiveness. With the mantle of authority also comes accountability. Though we did not originate these teachings and policies, we cannot deny accountability for their harm. Many of us were living and secure in our places of priesthood privilege during those days and did not speak out against their falsehood when it was our duty. And each of us now feels the weight of institutional responsibility for those affronts to God's precious children. Our souls are harrowed up by the memory of this sin. To every man, 
woman, and child, and to every family scarred by this hurtful sin, we humbly ask for forgiveness. We plead forgiveness of God and forgiveness from all of you in this room and throughout the world. Throughout the scriptures, the Lord has called for his people to humble themselves and correct the error of their ways, the leaders most of all. Members may be faithful in following the teaching and instructions of their leaders, but if their leaders are in error, how much greater is their need for repentance because of their influence? Just as individual repentance is commanded by the Lord, so too is institutional repentance, and we, the prophets and apostles, must take the lead. We began our own institutional repentance in 1978 when the restriction on the priesthood and temple blessings was removed. I learned as a surgeon how a wound which is not fully healed may fester, and I have come to see the principle true for our church. For us, this wound of racism has taken the form of lingering false ideas which have remained in the hearts of both leaders and members, resulting in cultural divisions which fester below the surface. Today, I am cleansing the wound and completing that doctrinal restitution by acknowledging that there are false racist ideas which have been enshrined in our canonized scripture. This is not as surprising as you might think. In the very title page, the prophet Moroni himself states that the Book of Mormon may contain errors which are the mistakes of men, and this is true of any scripture. With that in mind, I am announcing the formation of a scriptural review committee on race. This committee is composed of representatives from the Quorum of the Twelve, the Relief Society, the Seventy, and key members of BYU and CES faculty in sociology and race relations and will be presided over by the president of the Genesis Group. The committee will take the next six months to review our current body of modern revealed canonized scripture and identify those faults of men around racism which have been left uncorrected. They will consult with experts in sociology, race relations, and theology from both inside and outside of the church and present their recommendations at the October General Conference this fall. Those recommendations may take the form of additional footnotes, updated headers, additional explanatory text, or even full removal of offending passages. We will all have time to prayerfully consider their findings and recommendations before the April 2019 General Conference, where they will be presented to the body of the Church for a sustaining vote, according to the Law of Common Consent, as contained in the Doctrine and Covenants. Following the April 2019 Conference, the Correlation Department of the Church will complete the requisite systematic revision of all manuals, videos, and publications. True repentance requires a deep introspection and thorough understanding of the degree of the offense. Though it may sometimes be painful, it carries a hope for a brighter future free from the mistakes of the past. Though we have been chastened of the Lord, we are hopeful for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. End quote. It is my prayer that we all examine our hearts and root out those aspects of ourselves which may have been shaped by the racism of our past. As leaders and as members, we must constantly guard against these biases. The strongest ally we have in this endeavor is Christ. He set the example of unconditional love and charity. 
if we measure our hearts against that standard and always strive to meet it, changing where we must, even though it may be difficult, then we can stay on the path of discipleship and grow in faith and love for all of God's children. On behalf of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, its current and past leaders and members, I offer this humble apology and plead for forgiveness in the merciful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Signed, Russell M. Nelson, Dallin H. Oaks, Henry B. Eyring, the First Presidency. Now, having listened to that, can I ask you a question? If this was the place from which the church operated for the past 10 years, even with the messy history and Joseph Smith's polyandry and the book of Abraham not measuring up and the church having a racist past and the book of Mormon not being historical and Joseph being a treasure digger and young brides and sisters being married twice to Joseph so that Emma could be deceived, all of it. Brigham Young's coup d'etat in his takeover of church leadership. All of it. Adam God doctrines, messianic influences on the temple, day nights, you name it. Would you still be here? Would you still be here if this was the space the church operated from? You see, I used to think the church was a good place. I used to start off thinking like it was God's kingdom on earth, but these guys just had blind spots too. And they just made mistakes. And if folks like you and me could raise our hand and say like LDS church, Hey, over here, um, heads up. I think we're doing this thing over there. Not so good. Can we talk about that? I used to think that. And then I moved into a space where I said, I think the LDS church is at least good. And I think if these guys could just have somebody carry out these conversations where they make them aware of their unhealthiness, they would respond to it in kind and would make the changes needed to make this thing healthy, even at the expense of hurting its narrative. And then at some point last December, while I kept hoping and wishing, in fact, let's go back further, November of 2015, When the LGBT policy came out, it was really the first moment where I said, wait, this thing may not be good. This thing may put the perpetuation of its narrative, no matter how problematic and unhealthy, this thing may put the perpetuating of its narrative ahead of everything else, no matter how many people are hurt. And then last December... It hit me as I woke up in the morning on Sunday, ready to ask my family to get up and let's get ready for church. And I looked over at my wife and it's like this light bulb went on. And the final piece of the puzzle was that this thing is not good. This thing has no desire to be good. That in every chance it has a choice to protect others and be healthy, but hurt its narrative or hurt people, damage people, cause trauma to others, but perpetuate as best as it sees fit its authority and its narrative, it will choose the latter every single time. And I looked over at my dear wife and I said, I'm done. I need a break. And that break will last forever 
unless this thing can become good. And I simply no longer believe that it can become good. I have sat back over the last year and watched Elder Ballard lie about the church doesn't hide anything. I've watched Elder Holland lie about growth is our biggest problem. We're creating double-digit stakes every week of our lives. I watched Elder Perry lie several years ago that we've got answers in this briefcase, and if only I could show it to you, you would see we have answers. All of it lies. Why? Because belonging trumps authenticity. Creating fake faith trumps authenticity and vulnerability. Perpetuating this narrative, no matter how problematic and unhealthy, more important than vulnerability and authenticity. Helping our members of color heal and reconcile and begin in the smallest ways to start to put this behind us, just not as important as perpetuating the narrative and the authority, no matter how problematic, no matter how unhealthy. This thing is not good. This thing is a high-demand fundamentalist religion in the most unhealthiest of terms. This thing has no desire to do the right thing if the right thing diminishes its hold on you and me. So Mormonism has gotten very difficult to be part of. It's gotten very difficult to participate in, and so we don't. And I don't miss it. There are pieces and parts that I'm like, yeah, it would be kind of good to have that again, but not at this expense. My life is so much more full of peace, tranquility. I feel healthier. My hands aren't shaking. I'm not having headaches through the week. And I'm sensing as I live a life outside of Mormonism that I've been missing a lot of really awesome things. And so as time has gone on, it's become harder to talk about Mormonism. And while I'm determined to continue to try and do so, I simply wanted to share with you how hard it is. I used to love this thing. I was all in. Convert at 17 and bishop by 29. My ward, when I was a bishop, I feel deeply, and you can ask them. And if you ask me, I'll give you names of a dozen members there. I'll give you dozens and dozens if you want them, but I can quickly give you a dozen members there who can share with you how hard I tried to be a good bishop. And you can ask them whether that succeeded or not. I was all in, but this thing isn't good. What good it is, is you and me, the local members of the ward, loving and caring about each other in the best way they know how. As an institution, this thing is toxic. It's broken and it has no desire to fix itself. These leaders will continue to keep lying, they will continue to keep shielding themselves, and they will continue to keep perpetuating a narrative and authority that puts before it people's health and well-being. Zandro is right. When it is beneficial to this church, it loves to tell stories about the worth of deconstructing things like the Salt Lake Temple because the foundation was faulty, that it was worth it, that we couldn't build this thing on a bad foundation. We had to build it right. And it was worth going back and taking completely apart and getting rid of all the bad rocks, all the bad stone and starting over. But when it comes to the well-being of others in this faith, if that well-being 
protecting it, helping it, healing it, is going to hurt the authority or narrative of the church, then we're not going to go back and rebuild that thing. We're not going to deconstruct that. We're not going to make sure that that thing is built right. So in many ways for me, yes, Mormonism has lots of positives, does lots of good things, but it also is unhealthy. It's also abusive. It causes trauma. It distorts healthy boundaries. Mormonism is sick and it refuses to take its medicine. May the Lord warm your shoulders. God bless. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.